Stories of Communism 47, A View from the Top. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, along with co-host Manuel Castaneda in Oregon. Today we're going to look at a fascinating autobiography by a different kind of victim of communism, Svetlana Aleluyeva, the daughter of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Now, of course, we can't have too much sympathy for her, having lived a life of relative security and prosperity at the top of a system that was murdering millions of people. But she was not directly involved in the government and had to spend decades watching helplessly as almost all her family and friends fell victim to the horrible fates shared by so many who had the misfortune to live in Stalin's Soviet Union. As we'll see, her tragic story can give us some new insights into the fundamental nature of the Soviet system. We'll be looking at excerpts from her memoir, 20 Letters to a Friend, which was released after she escaped the USSR and defected to the United States in the 1960s. In Svetlana's early years, she actually had relatively positive memories of her father and a lively family life. There was even a romantic legend about how Stalin first met her mother, Nadezhda, many years before they eventually got married as adults. There is a family legend that as a young man, my father rescued my mother from drowning. It happened in Baku when she was two years old. She was playing on the shore and fell in. He is said to have gone in after her and fished her out. Years afterwards, my mother met my father again. She was a schoolgirl of 16 by that time, and he an old friend of the family, a 38-year-old revolutionary just back from exile in Siberia. Maybe the fact that he had rescued her seemed significant to her, for she was romantic, full of feeling and imagination. When Nadezhda and Stalin met again, they were both involved in the revolutionary movement that led to the formation of the Soviet Union. Both are viewing it somewhat idealistically at that point, though she was probably much more naive, being over two decades younger than her husband. Both dedicated themselves fully to the revolution at first. My father loved Russia deeply all his life. I know no other Georgian who had so completely sloughed off his qualities as a Georgian and loved everything Russian the way he did. Even in Siberia, my father had a real love of Russia, the nature, the people, the language. He always looked back on his years of exile as if there were nothing but hunting, fishing, and walks through the taiga. This love remained with him always. It was not the thing at the time for a woman, especially a woman party member, to spend much time with her children. My mother worked first on the staff of a magazine and then enrolled in the industrial academy. She was forever attending meetings somewhere and she spent all her free time with my father. He was her whole life. We children generally had to be content with her simply checking on our progress. She was strict and she had high standards. I cannot recall her kissing or caressing me ever. In this first revolutionary generation, Many of the leaders seemed to take their beliefs about personal property and luxury very seriously, not trying to accumulate special wealth or privileges directly. Stalin and his family actually seemed to hold on to these principles longer than most of their allies. Naturally, they still live very well compared to the average Russian of the period, but the ostentatious displays and conspicuous consumption that later dominated the Soviet elites did not seem to be very prevalent in this group. All the Soviet leaders lived pretty much like this at the time. No one cared about luxury or possessions, though they did try to give a good education to their children. All the wives had jobs and read all they could in their spare time. The woman paid no attention to makeup or clothes, but they looked nice just the same. It was only after my mother died that they started building him special dakas. My mother didn't live to see all this luxury paid for out of limitless public funds. That happened after she died, when the house came to be run at state expense on a military footing by agents of the secret police. During my mother's lifetime, we had a normal, modest life. For all their golden hands and their industriousness, both my grandparents were utterly impractical. During later years, when they had some small token privileges, such as ration books, to which old Bolsheviks were entitled, 
Both of them continued to show the utmost scorn for worldly goods. They kept on wearing the same old clothing left over from before the revolution. They would wear the same overcoat for 20 years, and out of three old dresses, my grandmother would make a perfectly good new one. The relatives of other important men in the party, meantime, were using similar positions to carve out lives of luxury for themselves and their relations, both close and not so close. My mother refused to go to the academy in a car or even let on to the other students who she was. Many of them didn't know for a long time whom Nadia was married to. Life was altogether simpler then. I can give you a good example. After Lenin died, or possibly even before, the Central Committee made a ruling that members of the party were not to keep the fees they were paid for books and articles, but must donate them to the party. My mother didn't agree. She thought it more honest to keep what you've actually earned than to give it up and spend unlimited funds belonging to the state on the upkeep of your household, on cars, dakas, servants, and so forth. Thank heaven my mother didn't live to see the day when leaders of the party, or refusing fees for their work, proceeded to maintain themselves and all their kith and kin at the expense of the state. As you may recall from other episodes, Stalin's international propaganda efforts flowered throughout the 1930s, winning him numerous foreign admirers. You may recall that we've previously alluded to the infamous Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times articles on the Ukraine famine, which made the claim that Soviet farming was actually wildly successful. Foreign officials and his other admirers from around the globe regularly sent lavish gifts to Stalin and his family, but he considered these more appropriately the property of the state. As for the presents which were sent to my father from all corners of the earth, he had them collected in one spot and donated to a museum. It wasn't hypocrisy or a pose on his part, as a lot of people say, but simply the fact that he had no idea what to do with this avalanche of objects that were valuable, sometimes priceless. Paintings, china, furniture, weapons, clothing, utensils, and products of local craftsmanship from everywhere in the world. Once in a while he gave one of them, a Romanian or Bulgarian folk costume or something like that, to me. On the whole, however, he considered it wrong that any personal use should be made even of the things that were sent to me. Maybe he realized that the feelings that went into them were symbolic, and he thought the things themselves deserved to be treated as symbols. In 1950, a museum of gifts was opened in Moscow. While my father was still alive, and even after, a woman of my acquaintance used to tell me, what a wonderful set of furniture, or what a marvelous record player, couldn't they let you keep it? But there could be no question of that. We can't be too impressed at how noble this sounds, as Stalin was meanwhile involved in launching and expanding the gulag that would imprison millions, and imposing ill-advised economic policies that would lead to mass poverty and famine. It's likely the pressure of learning this kind of information, as well as Stalin's clear prioritization of the state over her family, that led to increasing depression and strains in his marriage to Svetlana's mother, Nadia. After a major argument at a large party, where Stalin prominently toasted the destruction of the enemies of the state, she went back to her bedroom and shot herself. This was a shock to the entire family, and Svetlana seems to think this fundamentally changed her father, distancing him from humanity in general and hardening his heart against human empathy. What was the effect of my mother's death? Did it simply leave my father free to do what he would have done in any case? Or was it that her suicide broke his spirit and made him lose his faith in all his old friends? And then, could she have halted the terrible process had she lived? I doubt it. She, of course, would never have betrayed her old friends. Nothing would ever have convinced her that Yanakudza, her godfather, was an enemy of the people. But in that case, wouldn't she have gone the same way as they did? She would never have been a match for her mortal enemy, Beria. One can only speculate. I think fate saved her from an ordeal she could never have borne. As power became increasingly concentrated in Stalin himself, Svetlana saw her family surrounded by an army of clever flatterers and manipulators ready to take advantage of the situation to enrich their own families and friends. 
The problem grew as Stalin was now so prominent that only a small circle of trusted advisors could be allowed any form of direct contact, and they were able to filter any information he received secondhand. I must now mention another general, Nikolai Vlasic, who was first assigned to my father by the Red Army as a bodyguard in 1919 and remained with him for a very long time, finally attaining immense power behind the scenes. He was in charge of all my father's security arrangements and considered himself closer to my father than anybody else. And though he was incredibly stupid, illiterate, and uncouth, he behaved like a grandee and took it on himself in my father's last years to dictate Comrade Stalin's tastes, which he thought he knew well, to various luminaries in the arts. And they had to listen and take his advice. No Bolshoi Gala performance on the eve of November 7th or state banquet in St. George's Hall of the Kremlin was allowed to take place without Vlasic's passing on the program first. His insolence knew no bounds. He would graciously pass the word to people in the arts, whether this or that movie or opera, or even the shapes of the skyscrapers being built in those days had found favor or not with my father. Stalin seemed to be somewhat aware of what was going on here, but felt that even he was powerless to stop it. When he replaced these kinds of people, he just ended up with more of the same. Sometimes he'd pounce on his commandants or the generals of his bodyguards, someone like Vlasic, and start cursing. You parasites, you're making a fortune here. Don't think I don't know how much money is running through your fingers. But the fact was, he knew no such thing. His intuition told him huge sums were going out the window, but that was all. From time to time, he'd make a stab at auditing the household accounts, but nothing ever came of it, of course, because the figures they gave him were faked. He'd be furious, but he couldn't find out a thing. All-powerful as he was, he was impotent in the face of the frightful system that had grown up around him like a huge honeycomb, and he was helpless either to destroy it or bring it under control. General Vlasic laid out millions in my father's name. He spent it on new houses and trips by enormous special trains, for example. Yet my father was unable even to get a clear explanation of how much money was being paid out, where, and to whom. As you might expect, the scariest aspect of Svetlana's childhood was her father's campaign of purges and terror that started in the 1930s. Some of Stalin's relatives tried to convince him to stop these arrests and save their friends, but this just made Stalin suspect them as well. Surprisingly, while most senior officials of the regime tried to do their best to protect their family members, he was easily manipulated by secret police leader Lavrenti Beria to approve arrests even of his own relatives. Many of these victims had been very close to him and his children, such as Svetlana's uncles and aunts. In 1938, after Alexander Svanidze and his wife and my Aunt Anna's husband, Stanislav Reddins, had all been arrested, Uncle Pavel came to my father again and again to plead for colleagues of his in the army who'd been swallowed up by the giant wave. It never did any good. In the autumn of 1938, Pavel went to Sochi on vacation, and it was bad for his weak heart. When he got back, he found that every one of his colleagues had disappeared. There had been so many arrests that it was as though the place had been swept by a broom. Pavel dropped dead of a heart attack in his office. My father loved both Uncle Alexander and Aunt Maria, especially Uncle Alexander, and treated them like real members of the family. Did they have their differences when it came to politics? Were there political disagreements between my father and Uncle Alexander, or Reddins, or Uncle Pavel? Maybe. People weren't afraid of having their own opinions in those days, and they had them on every subject. They were unafraid of life and refused to close their eyes to its complexities. How could such a thing happen? How could my father do it? The only thing I know is that it couldn't have been his idea. But if a skillful flatterer like Beria whispered slowly in his ear that these people are against you, that there were compromising material and dangerous connections, such as trips abroad, my father was capable of believing it. I'll tell you later how shattered he was by the death of both my mother and Kirov. Maybe he never trusted people very much, 
but after their death stopped trusting them at all. Once he had cast out of his heart someone he had known a long time, once he had mentally relegated that someone to the ranks of his enemies, it was impossible to talk to him about that person anymore. He was constitutionally incapable of the reversal that would turn a fancied enemy back to a friend. Any effort to persuade him to do so only made him furious. The only thing they accomplished by it was loss of access to my father and total forfeiture of his trust. When he saw each of them for the last time, it was as if he were parting with someone who was no longer a friend, with someone, in fact, who was already an enemy. Despite all this, he still appeared to have a slight soft spot for Svetlana, who was at least able to protect her nurse, nicknamed Granny due to their closeness, from being sent to the Gulag. But this was unusual. In general, he had a standing rule that Svetlana was not allowed to bring up such cases with him or attempt to intervene in police matters. Granny attempted to treat the whole matter lightheartedly, refusing to be overcome by the general culture of fear surrounding her. They told my father that my nurse was untrustworthy and that her son had undesirable friends. My father had no time to go into these things himself. He liked having the people whose job it was go into such matters thoroughly and only bring them to his attention when they had closed their case. When I had heard there was a plot afoot to get rid of my nurse, I set up an outcry. My father couldn't stand tears. Besides, maybe he too wanted to express some inner protest against all this insanity. In any case, he got angry all of a sudden and commanded them to leave my nurse in peace. She was a member of the family 30 years in all, from 1926 to 1956, when she died at the age of 70. When, during and even before the war, the entire household staff was put on a military footing, Granny was officially listed as an employee of the secret police. Granny was highly amused to be given the rank of junior sergeant. She saluted the cook whenever she went into the kitchen and said things like, attention, or aye aye sir. She took the whole business like a nonsensical joke or a game. She didn't want any truck with all these foolish rules. She took care of me and did a good job of it. She couldn't have cared less what rank they chose to give her. She'd seen all she wanted of life and witnessed a great many changes. First they abolished ranks, she liked to point out, and then they brought them back. But as she saw it, life went on just the same, and it was up to her to do her job, which in her case was to love children and help people live no matter what might be going on around them. Svetlana also tells the tragic story of her two brothers, Yakov and Vasily, who present contrasting attitudes among the communist elite. Her oldest brother Yakov tried to live modestly and avoided taking advantage of his father's name. When the Germans invaded, he immediately took on his duty to protect his country by joining the military, not seeking any special privileges. He was captured at the front and ended up spending the final years of his life in a German prison camp, eventually being shot after they decided he wasn't sufficiently useful for propaganda. Stalin had refused to deal with the Germans to get him out, but sought revenge in the wrong place in his own cruel way, blaming his wife Yulia. The war broke out on June 22, 1941. My oldest brother Yakov left for the front the next day with his battery and his graduating class at the Frunz Military Academy. They finished just in time to go to war. He never took advantage of who he was, never made the slightest attempt to avoid danger, to be assigned to the rear or to a headquarters behind the battle lines, even to get out of being sent to Belarusia, the worst part of the front. Everything around him, his character and his entire scrupulous, honorable, incorruptible approach to life, precluded any such thing. Somehow, Stalin got the idea that someone had tricked Yakov and betrayed him intentionally. Mightn't Yulia have been a party to it? When we got back to Moscow that September, he told me, Yasha's daughter can stay with you a while, but it seems that his wife is dishonest. We'll have to look into it. So Yulia was arrested in Moscow in the fall of 1941 and was imprisoned until the spring of 1943 when it turned out she had nothing to do with Yakov's capture 
and when his conduct as a prisoner finally convinced my father that he hadn't surrendered on purpose. Svetlana's other brother, Vasily, presented the opposite picture. Lazy and egotistical, he took advantage of his family privileges at every opportunity, eventually ending up as a penniless drunk and convicted criminal after his father died. Vasily's life was tragic in a way. He was a product and victim of the same system and environment that nurtured and gave rise to the cult of personality. The system that gave rise to the cult also enabled Vasily to make a spectacular career. He was pushed higher and higher. Those responsible couldn't have cared less about his strengths and weaknesses any more than they cared what his real abilities were. Their one thought was to curry favor with my father. Vasily was transferred to Moscow from East Germany in 1947 and promptly made chief of aviation of the Moscow military district. It was an enormous responsibility, yet everyone knew he was an alcoholic. He was so ill he could no longer fly his own plane. Nobody seemed to care. Vasily stopped at nothing. He engaged in intrigue and exploited his proximity to my father. Anybody who'd fallen out of favor with him was kicked out of his path, and some even went to jail. No privilege was denied him. They gave him medals, higher and higher rank, horses, automobiles, privileges, everything. They spoiled and corrupted him just as long as they needed him. But once my father was dead and they didn't need him anymore, they abandoned and forgot him. A military collegium sentenced him to eight years in jail. Vasily couldn't believe it. He bombarded the government with letters, letters of despair, letters admitting all the accusations against him, even threatening letters. He lost sight of who he was or where he was and failed to realize that he was a nobody now. Svetlana, meanwhile, was growing up. By the late 1940s, she'd been married once to a Jewish man who didn't meet her father's approval, but the marriage hadn't worked out. For her second husband, she made a more conventional choice, marrying the son of a prominent communist leader. But she was soon disgusted by the attitudes and lifestyle of her new family, especially by her family's treatment of Granny, her old nurse, who now visited regularly as a friend. I found myself in a household where a show, albeit a purely external hypocritical show, was made of what was called party spirit on the one hand, while on the other hand there existed a dyed-in-the-wool acquisitiveness of the worst female kind. There were trunkloads of possessions. The whole setting, with its vases and worthless still-lifes on the walls, was vulgar and totally lacking in taste. The place was presided over by my mother-in-law, Zenaida Zhidanov, the widow and ultimate embodiment of this mixture of party bigotry and the complacency of the bourgeois woman. After we were married, my husband's friends started coming less and less often. Our circle narrowed down to the family, and it became hopelessly and intolerably dull. The years 1949 to 1952 were terribly trying for me, as they were for everyone. The whole country was gasping for air. Things were unbearable for everyone. The most orthodox party spirit reigned in the house I lived in, but it had nothing in common with the spirit of my grandfather and my grandmother, my mother, all the old party people I knew. It was all hypocritical, a caricature purely for show. We drink tea and jam when I went out to see Granny. She told me about her ailments and we talked about our affairs. She came to see me at Uspenskoy, the Zhidanov's country house, two or three times, but they treated her with utmost condescension. All except little Joseph, who always flung himself on Granny, as he called her, and she would leave quickly. She wasn't used to being treated that way. All her life, no matter whom she worked for, she'd been treated as one of the family. Even the families of the nobility she had worked for before the revolution treated her better than the Zhidanovs. It hurt her pride. At this point, Svetlana also saw the final waves of arrests of her own family members. On this occasion, Stalin stuck with his usual policy and dismissed his daughter's attempts to intervene. And even worse, he had an ominous comment that seemed to indicate she was actually putting herself in danger. A new wave of arrests got underway at the end of 1948. My two aunts, the widows of Uncle Pavel and Reddins, were sent to prison, 
and so was everyone who knew them. J.G. Marzov, the father of my first husband, was arrested too. Next, there was a campaign against people who were called cosmopolitan, and a whole new group of people were arrested. When I asked him, he told me what my aunts were guilty of. They talked a lot. They knew too much, and they talked too much, and it helped our enemies. He was bitter, as bitter as he could be against the whole world. He saw enemies everywhere. It had reached the point of being pathological, of persecution mania, and it was all a result of being lonely and desolate. You yourself make anti-Soviet statements, he told me one day angrily and in complete earnest. I didn't try to object or ask where he got that from. Her memoirs are continued in a second volume, where she discusses her escape from the Soviet Union and her defection to the United States, though we're not covering that topic today. At the end of the 20 letters, she tries to sum up her thoughts about her father's crimes and the progress of the communist revolution during her lifetime. As for those who wanted to set themselves above the revolution, who wanted to speed up its progress and make tomorrow come today, those who tried to do good by doing evil and make the wheels of time and progress spin faster, have they accomplished what they wanted? Millions were sacrificed senselessly, thousands of talented lives extinguished prematurely. The tale of these losses could not be told in 20 books, never mind 20 letters. It's not for me, but for history to decide who has served the cause of good and who that of vanity and vainglory. I certainly don't have the right. All I have is my conscience. I do not think they'll call our error a progressive one or that they'll say it was for the good of Russia. Hardly. They will have their say. What they say will be something new and cogent. Instead of idle whining, they will give voice to a new sense of purpose. They will read through this page in their country's history with a feeling of pain, contrition, and bewilderment, and they'll be led by this feeling to live their lives differently. But I hope they won't forget that what is good never dies, that it lived on in the hearts of men even in the darkest times and was hidden where no one thought to look for it, that it never died out or disappeared completely. Oh, what a fascinating fascinating book i mean there's definitely a personality that everybody would recognize around the world yeah i mean i, I was surprised reading it you know i'd gone in expecting to to hate this person right as, as part of stalin's family yeah it wasn't quite like that i was actually very surprised too especially uh the fact at least in the beginning, how and when her mother was alive, how how respectful they wanted to be about the uh, the hard earned taxpayers' money, and and how they they were able to manage to live a a normal life without you know what we see now or what we saw what we hear about later being you know all kinds of uh, special treatment for them. But it was uh, it was enlightening for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I found most interesting, right? You, you expect Stalin to come across as just basically a, a gangster who took advantage of all this revolution stuff to enrich himself. But the surprising thing that comes across is that he's actually a true believer Right, he wasn't really trying <laughs> yeah. to make himself rich. I mean, he was still insane and horrible, killing millions of people. But he sincerely believed he was doing it to make his country better. That is so true, and and his wife too uh, was of the same mind. And I, I mean, it's. Uh, I have to be honest with you. I have always complained about our. Um, 
homegrown uh, communist uh, thinkers here, and I the first the first uh, disagreement I have with them is that they're hypocrites, you know, that they say one thing to the people and then they do the opposite behind the scenes and they live a whole different lifestyle. Um, but it doesn't seem like that was the case in their case. And I have always given credit to socialists or, or communists that, that actually walk, uh, uh, walk their talk or, or, do what they say, uh, but uh, most of them don't. So I was very surprised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, once someone has power, it's very easy for them to rationalize taking special privileges or giving themselves extra comforts. After all, they have to work at peak efficiency for the people, right? But there, there are yeah. a few who don't take advantage like that, who really are sincere. And the interesting thing here is that even though Stalin was sincere, he was sort of surrounded by those selfish pleasure seekers who naturally gravitated to him and took total advantage of the situation. I, as I was reading all that, at first I was shocked because I believe it was, you know, this thug that came in, like the story of Saddam Hussein or something, that mm -hmm. he rise to the ranks by being brutal and criminal and and uh, not caring for anything it was it was surprising and i it just like i said it it i thought it was so from the beginning oh uh, a hypocrite but i guess not and i i clearly remember the the uh, mayor of uh, of chicago when when they had all these rules against COVID or going out and she was uh, getting her hair done and stuff, and she says, well, I'm <laughs> special. I'm special. <laughs> I should yeah. be treated differently. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, the biggest lesson to read from here is that when you have this kind of concentration of power, the people who want to take advantage for themselves increasingly sort of just rise to the top naturally because they are the most ruthless. So even though you had Stalin as a true believer, he ended up surrounded by all these people who really just wanted advantages for themselves or were able to rationalize that in their hearts. You know, and, and one thing that this story really struck me as is it sort of reminds me of the stories of ancient Roman imperial families, right? Because just like Stalin's family, you know, the, the ancient Roman emperors tended to murder or imprison members of their family all the time, like they were rivals to power and therefore threats. And also, the palaces always ended up full of people who really just wanted advantages for themselves, leeching off the system. Like you might remember how during the, the bad periods of Roman history, the Praetorian prefects, you know, the leaders of the imperial guard, always had massive role in choosing the new emperors just because they were central to all the power, could kill whoever they wanted, and had so much at stake if someone who wasn't going to continue their advantages might be chosen. Uh, you're absolutely right. As I was reading that part, I that just immediately started, my head started turning and say, you know, we, we see that even sometimes around us, uh, that we get 
very upset of the elected politicians, but some of them don't have any power anymore because of the, the permanent bureaucracy, the permanent bureaucrats that have all the power now. If you're a bureaucrat who serves that politician, then he loses power. You know, that's your job, your livelihood, all your benefits gone. Yes, and because uh, those politicians in this case, like like Stalin and some of even some of our local politicians, they they really don't know the inner workings of everyday life out there, what's going on. So they have to depend on these people, on these uh, top bureaucrats that surround them, and uh, and they have no choice but to follow uh, their advice. I understand she. Uh, immigrated here to the U.S. in the 1960s. Uh, it says that she escaped from there. I mean, how uh, do, how would, uh, you don't think she could have just said, I'm going on vacation and then not come back or that wouldn't have worked? Yeah, it's interesting. That was actually covered in the second volume of her autobiography, which I didn't really cover in this podcast. But what happened was that after Stalin died, the senior officials of the regime still thought it would be damaging to the reputation if Stalin's daughter immigrated to another country, right? One of their greatest leaders. Oh, yes. Families okay. showed they didn't have confidence in the system. What, what ended up happening was she ended up marrying an uh, Indian communist who was in Russia getting medical treatment. And... Uh, Unfortunately, her husband died, and according to tradition, his ashes had to be spread, and I think, so she managed to convince the government to let her out to go to India because she had to perform this solemn ritual for her dead husband, and uh, that oh, was wow. how she got out, and then when she was in India, she was able to sneak off to the American embassy and, and take things from there. I was uh, as surprised as to... Uh, at least the way that he was explained in the book is that, that Stalin at times, he himself felt uh, powerless. To do yeah, yeah. I mean, it's anything. amazing how this system just kind of rose around him. And again, all these self-seeking bureaucrats were also his only real conduit to the outside world. And I think it's also a really big lesson because let's suppose some um, someone nicer than Stalin, but who was really sincere about using communism to save the world, had been in his place instead. Would things have been any different? You know, I think he would have still been surrounded by the same types of people. Yeah, I was also, uh, you know, very intrigued because even his, uh, his sons would not you know, immediately uh, become entitled and, and they seem to also be believers because uh, in the story it tells us that, you know, quickly when war erupted, uh, uh, the son was there ready to sign up. Right, well, the, the older son, right? The, the, the older son. took dramatically different paths. Yeah, right. the, the older son was very sincere, but the the younger one just was yeah. probably your worst stereotype of a, a rich spoiled. I I thought it was gonna be a, a book about just ruthless crime and pulling people 
you know, into their home and uh, experiencing uh, people screaming in the in the in the basement of the house or something and nothing like that. It seems like uh, they uh, they were living a normal life. And yeah, well, not sure if anything could be said to be normal about being Stalin's daughter, but yeah, it definitely definitely wasn't what I expected. Yeah, I guess not as normal because it says her mother didn't thing wasn't like motherly close to her, you know, like a hugging mother and loving mother, kissing mother, but more like a uh, a a very committed uh servant at the state of the state. Yeah, yeah. And I mean I think that is one thing also that stands out. Of course it was tragic that her mother committed suicide when she was so young. But even when her mother was alive she seemed to sort of care about the state above her family. And that was yes. the philosophy of a lot of the early communists. Yes, exactly. That they have to have more loyalty to the government, the community, that their own family. Yeah, and, and then, of course, we, we saw that spread throughout society, um, especially during the Stalin period when children were encouraged to inform on their parents if they were disloyal to the government and, and things like that. That is true. Well, that was a great find and a great story. Uh, thanks uh, to everyone who's uh, listening and, and, you know, just enjoy the story. You can use the link in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com to read more of Svetlana Alulieva's fascinating memoir. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.